I'm going to be reading from Paul's, or sorry, John's first letter, 1 John. This is verses 7 through 12 of 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. Um, today, on Good Friday, people all around the world are going to gather, either online or perhaps if their jurisdiction allows it, uh, in person. And they're going to do something kind of strange. They're going to, to celebrate an event that happened some 2,000 years ago. They're going to, to reflect on, like we're doing, and, and celebrate, like we're doing, the killing of a man. They're, they're actually going to be commemorating a crime, the murder of an innocent man named Jesus of Nazareth. You know, and in, in some cases, they'll actually reenact it. They'll act out the events that led up to uh, the killing of Jesus. And sometimes I wonder, what must this be like for a non-Christian, particularly a non-Christian who doesn't really know much about the Bible, doesn't know many of the Bible stories, doesn't understand the Bible. I wonder what it's like for them at, at 6 o'clock at night, at the, as the day is over and they're turning on the news, and the news starts showing footage from around the world, people celebrating Good Friday, and then maybe they do an extended story of one of these reenactments. And, and so this person is watching the news, and they see some guy dressed in nothing but like some kind of underwear, kind of loincloth-y type thing, and he's carrying a piece of wood on his shoulders, and he's dragging it through the, the streets of a city, and he's kind of covered in blood, and he's got this crown of thorns on him, and he's got all these people sort of watching him in agony as he, he pulls this thing out of the city. And they must think to themselves, like, what is this? Why are all these people celebrating this cruel, barbarous, what looks like actually kind of a sadistic act? And why on earth is it called good Friday. Why would you call this day good when you're celebrating such a, a terrible event in history? And of course, the Christian answer to that question is, it's called Good Friday because of love. Good Friday is all about love. Because on Good Friday, what God did was, was he showed the human race what real love looks like. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice 
for our sins. That is real love according to God. Not the syrupy, sentimental, kind of emotional and superficial love that passes for love these days on our social media feeds and in our romance movies, that kind of thing. This is a, a much, much deeper love. It is a much costlier love. It is a much more painful love. And it is a sacrificial love. Utterly different from the kind of love that we'll see represented in our culture today. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd just like to reflect with you on what this passage anyway, as it explains the crucifixion, what this passage teaches us about real love. Three things. Love is a commitment to act. Love is costly. And love, real love, is a power, gives us the power to do the impossible. Those are the three things that we're going to look at briefly this morning. First of all, Love is a commitment to, to act. You notice that in verse 10, or sorry, verse 9, it says, God showed his love among us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And then in verse 11, no, verse 10, I'm getting my verses all mixed up. In verse 10, it says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. On that day, some 2,000 years ago, which seems like so long ago for us, on that day, Jesus and the Father together, they made good on a commitment that they had agreed to long before Jesus was ever born in that manger uh, in Bethlehem. Long before even the creation of the world, God the Father and God the Son had committed, had agreed that they were going to enter into this rescue project. They knew that we as the human race would rebel against God. They knew that we would turn our backs on God and we would seek to live by our own code, by our own uh, ethics, by our own lordship. And that we would be lost forever to him unless he, they, did something about it. And in time, on that fateful day 2,000 years ago, Jesus finally did something about it. You know, I, I admit that this is my imagination talking. Um, but sometimes I, I like to picture what it must have been like in the throne room of God, when the God, when when the Father and the Son decided upon this plan, the way I picture it, and again, I admit this is my imagination. I'm not drawing this from the Bible. I'm drawing this from my head. But I picture the throne room of God, and there is God in all His majesty and glory. Think Isaiah chapter six. If you don't know what Isaiah chapter six is, write it down. Go read it later. There is the Lord Almighty in, the, in, the, in his throne room, sitting upon his throne, and the train of his robe fills the entire room. And the seraphim are flying around him, 
and they have their eyes covered and their feet covered and they're flying and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is God Almighty in his throne room and he is surrounded by innumerable angels. This is a very big throne room as I picture it. And they're around the glory of God and, at, and, and finally at one point God says, man has sinned. Man has rebelled against me. Man has chosen to turn their back on me. The human race is lost to me and they deserve death and judgment for their rebellion against me. I gave them absolutely everything. I gave them life. I gave them fellowship with me. I gave them breath. I gave them the world to enjoy and appreciate and they have made an absolute disaster of absolutely everything. And they are cut off from me. And because they are cut off from me, they are dead in their sins and their transgressions. But I want them back. I am not satisfied to lose my beloved treasure, the human race, and therefore I want them back. Someone must go and rescue them. Now you need to realize that, that in order to rescue them, someone must go and die in their place because my justice must be satisfied. I must be true to my nature as a just and holy and pure and righteous God and therefore someone must pay the debt for them. Who will go and stand in their place? Who will take the judgment for them? And in my mind, I picture the angels, this innumerable multitude that has been cheering the glory of God up until now, fall dead silent. You can hear a pin drop because they all know they can't do it. They all know they're not strong enough to bear such a burden and so even Gabriel and, and Michael, the greatest among the angels, they all are dead silent and they, they look down because they can't even look at the Lord and, 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 and they, they, they shuffle their feet. It's one of those awkward silences, you know? And in my mind's eye, I picture after the, the quiet that the son who is at the right hand of his father sitting upon his throne for he too is a king. And he shines brighter than a thousand blazing suns because he is the most glorious being. And he stands up and he's arrayed in these awe-inspiring robes of majesty and glory and he begins to take them off and he says, I will go. I will stand in their place. I will clothe myself in flesh and I will live among them and I will suffer for them and I will die in their place and I will bear the cost of their sin and the angels are dumbfounded. They are shocked. They adore the Son and they know what the human race is going to do to, that, to him. They are going to hate him and they are going to reject him and they are going to spite him and loathe him. They knew it. The father knew it. And the son knew it. They all knew it. And yet Jesus did it. He knew that he would be abused and he knew that he would have to take on God's holy wrath for our sin, and he came anyway. You see, that's 
love. That's real love. It's not just an emotion you feel. It's not what the dictionary calls love, which was just an, an extreme attachment and affection. I looked it up. You know, if all, if all love is, is that, you know you'd only be able to love good people, eh? And that's all God would be able to do either. If that's all love is, it's just a, an emotional response to how you're treated by another. It's a, it's a response of affection by how you're treated to, uh, by another. The only way you'd ever be able to love anybody is if they're a good person. Because they do something that you like, they do something you enjoy, something that you appreciate, and so you have an emotional response to that. You say, well, I love that person. Think of, look at how they take care of me. Look how they think of me. Look how they treat me. It's not actually that hard to love if that's what love is. But the gospel is not that we are good people. It's not that Jesus came into the world to die for good people. The Bible says that we are enemies of God, that we are opposed to God, that we defy God time and time again. Romans chapter 5 verse 3, however, says that God, sorry, not verse 3, verse 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That little word still is so important, friends. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were unlovable, while we were undesirable, not because we were lovely. That's not why Jesus died. Jesus died to make us lovely. Real love is a commitment to act. Second of all, real love is costly. At the heart of the cross is this idea of sacrifice. John uses it in our text. He says he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What does that mean, atoning sacrifice? It, it simply means this, that, that Jesus satisfied God's punishment for sin, turning God's wrath away from us by taking it upon himself. He took the hit for us. You can imagine if you were playing with your children in the street and a car comes and you say, okay, kids, let's get off the street because a car is coming. And then uh, one of your kids leaves a stuffed animal on the street and, and all of a sudden has this natural reaction to go dart out into traffic to retrieve it. You would, if you were to, to, to run out and push them aside and take the hit of the car for them in order to save them from their lives, that's, that's you making a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for them. But Jesus did this on a grand scale. He took this punishment upon us so that we would not have to take that punishment upon ourselves. You know, people who aren't Christians, they, they look at the cross and they look at the idea of the atonement and they, they think to themselves, this is weird and this is crazy. Why, why do we need that? I mean, Richard Dawkins calls the doctrine of the atonement, which he rightly understands is, a, is at the heart of the Christian faith, interestingly enough. He calls it barking mad. Why would God require that? And that's actually another sermon. I, I can't go into that today. I will simply say this. Sin, friends, sin is really, 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 really bad. All sin. 
Some of you know that because you have committed some serious sin and you have seen the destruction that it has caused in your own life and in the lives of those around you. Some of you, you're not so sure yet, frankly, because God in his grace has kind of let you get away with your sins. Your sins seem not that serious. You dabble a little bit in things that are, are deadly, but you never give yourself fully to the dark side, a la Star Wars. But here's the thing, if sin, if the wages of sin is death, which is what Paul says in the book of Romans, does it really matter if you are killed by a spider bite that you get behind your ear and nobody can tell and therefore you're dead? Or if you are mauled by a lion and you've been shredded from head to toe and you look disgusting? What's the difference? You're dead either way. So those of us who have lived lives of relative goodness, we think, and know that we have every now and then fallen by the wayside or not lived up to God's expectations, and we're pretty good people, but we're not perfect people, and we know that we've broken his law. The wages of sin is death. You look pretty good, but judgment still hangs upon us. We're dead by a spider bite. We're not dead by the mauling of the lion, but we're still dead. The main point, however, here is not that God demands our blood. You see, the cross, what is remarkable about the cross is not that God demands our blood for sin, but that God actually offered his own. In Romans 3, verse 25, Paul says that God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. What God demanded, God himself provided. It was an act of self-sacrifice. And friends, all life-changing love requires self-sacrifice. Let me say it again. All life-changing love requires self-sacrifice. If you've ever been involved with someone who's gone through a hard time or maybe they're a person who is chronically going through hard times and they're emotionally wounded and you minister to them, you care for them, you go out for coffee with them to encourage them and to strengthen them, you know that when you walk into that situation, it's either them or you. It's either them or you. Either you are going to empty yourself emotionally and spiritually and pour into them in order to build them up or you're not going to. And therefore, they will continue to drown in their sorrow or their anxiety or their depression or their sin. But if you are going to actually reach out and minister to them, you know that it's going to cost you something. It has to. You leave the coffee shop emotionally drained while they leave the coffee shop emotionally elated. And there is no other option. Parenting is probably the closest thing we have on this earth to what is being described here. When you are a parent, the first thing you have to realize is that yes, parenting is wonderful, but the first thing that you got to do as a parent is, is you have to give up all kinds of personal freedom for the sake of your kids. You can't do what you want when you want. You can't go where you want when you want. I've said this I don't know how many times. This is maybe why a bunch of my kids don't like reading. Because when, when they were young, I had to read all these boring books over and over and over and over again because they loved them. Maybe now they don't want to read anymore because 
they hear me say that about their upbringing. Maybe they knew deep down, <laughs> Dad didn't like this book. But you're constantly sacrificing for them, constantly putting your own desires and your own agenda on the back, on the back burner for them. If you want them to be meaningful, useful members of society someday, healthy, well-rounded, emotionally stable people, you got to do it. Someone always has to pay. It's either you or them. On the cross, we see this great exchange where Christ willingly paid. He said, I'll do it for them. And you know, people sometimes respond with that, well, I didn't ask him to die for me. Do you not understand? That actually makes it more wonderful. That you didn't ask him to die for you. You didn't ask him to come down and experience the hell of living among us. And then finally, when we got our hands on him, being nailed to a cross and being mocked and spit upon and killed for our sake, we didn't ask him to do that, and yet he did it for us anything. It's one thing to rescue someone who's begging for it. You're walking along the, the shore of the lake and someone says, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, please, please help me. And you run in there and you save them and they say, oh, thank you for saving me. That's one thing. It's a whole other thing when someone's dying right in front of you and they, they, they literally do whatever they can to keep you from saving them. And you say, as Jesus did in John chapter 13, you don't know what I'm doing now, but one day you will understand To rescue someone who's not looking for it is an even greater gift. John Stott wrote this. He said, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. In sin, we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. And in salvation, God put himself where only we deserve to be. You know, all year long, since September, we have been making our way through, through the stories of this book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you don't have it yet, I'll pitch it one more time. Get it. If you don't have any children, little children at home, get it anyway. Read it yourself. Cry at the beauty of the stories, and eventually there'll be a little kid in your house at some point. Yours or someone else's. And to be able to read it with them would be a good thing. I'm finally going to read from the Jesus Storybook Bible instead of talk about it. Listen to this. This is, this is first from the story called The Dark Night in the Garden. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he says, Papa, Father, he fell to the ground. Is there any other way to get your children back, to heal their hearts, to get rid of the poison? But Jesus knew there was no other way. All the poison of sin was going to have to go into his own heart. God was going to pour into Jesus' heart all the sadness and the brokenness of people's hearts. He was going to pour into Jesus' body all the sickness in people's bodies. God was going to have to blame his son for everything that had gone wrong. It would crush Jesus. But there was something more. Jesus knew he was going to have to lose his father, and that would break his heart in two. And now from the story 
of the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. They, you, you say you've come to rescue us, people shouted. But you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he called. If you're really the son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course, they were right. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Papa, Jesus cried frantically, searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time, and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Real love, friends, is a commitment, and real love is costly. You could say real love is suffering. And you can't escape suffering if you choose to love. And some of us are afraid to love because of that. But listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of co or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, dark, safe, motionless, airless, it'll change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So how can anybody love? If the risk is so great, how can anybody love? And this is the last point. In the cross, we see the power to do the impossible. I tried to make this case for true love, but, but it's not an attractive case, really. Unless what you're looking for in love is redemption and transformation. Because you see, it is God's love that redeems us. And it's always love that redeems anyone. Think of the hard people you know, the messed up people you know, the, 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 the hard-nosed, callous, angry, difficult, hard-as-rock people that you know. They're unlovable. What will change them? What will bring about their redemption? Will telling them that they're hard-nosed and unlovable and difficult and cruel and unkind and needy and harsh, will letting them know those things change them? 
Will turning your back on them and saying, I'll have nothing to do with them so that they learn their lesson, will that change them? You know it won't. The the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The only thing that brings about change is love. This kind of love. That's why John, in the last verse, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You look at the cross and you see what he did for you, that he was crushed for you, that he cast, he was cast off for you, that he loved you to the end. And that's what broke you. That's what changed you. That's what transformed you. And he did that so that your love towards others could change and be transformed. At the end of this passage, near the end of this passage, in verse 19, John says something absolutely profound. He says, we love because he first loved us. The always and forever, inexhaustible, never-ending, never-giving-up love of God. That's what we celebrate today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to love as Jesus loved. It seems impossible to really love like that, and I guess all we'll ever be able to do is uh, is love in, in a in a way that is a pale pale illustration of that love but father how powerful would that be to see your love manifested through us to this world that is so desperate to know true love enable us to do it father for your glory for the glory of your son who loved us and gave himself up for us all it is in his name that we pray Amen.